Lord, this morning we praised you about things so true about you, especially you're a good father. It's who you are. And we're loved by you. Um, it is so easy for us to stray from that identity, to live for other things, and to lose that sense of really why we're important and what our value is. So I just pray that you would help us to, to learn to be more centered on you. Thank you for this worship time and singing. And now we want to worship you as we look at the word because we want to orient our lives around you. Jesus, it's all about you, and we pray in your name. Amen. All right, you may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Yeah, I got the college group right here. School's back in swing. That's exciting. Football's in the air. Um, all the things I love about the fall. Um, had a rain this morning, which is great. Our yard, which was far, which was like almost on, just wasn't surviving. This summer has like made it all alive. At least it looks alive. It's a lot of weeds and clover and things, but or whatever. But it still looks a lot better than normal. Um, so thankful for the continuing rain and all of that. Um, so this week we're going to start a series that's going to be the majority of our fall, and the topic is really a strange one. It's on spiritual idolatry. And you're probably wondering, why in the world are we going to, why are we going to spend time on that? I hope by the end of today, you'll see why it's really such an important topic. Um, I did an abbreviation version of this a few years ago, so I apologize to those of you who heard that, but I've been told by several who heard it, they don't remember anything about it, so that's okay, that's, <laughs> that's normal. So it's uh, probably why you should just do a lot more of the worshiping, because that's a lot more memorable. Um, this idea is so foundational, not only in the Bible, but in my own thinking and my living that I really wanted to share this with you all early on in my teaching at 12th. Um, you know how you can like totally miss a theme or a topic in the Bible for years, and then all of a sudden you realize how significant and important it is? This happened to me several years ago. Um, when I came to understand how pervasive this theme was in the Bible and how bedrock it really was in the Bible, it really, it radically changed my understanding of a lot of things about my own behavior, my sin, my heart, the things that drive and motivate me, learned a lot about myself. Um, it even changed the way I shared the gospel, which you'll get a little bit of a taste of um, today. Um, and I go back to this all the time. Somebody said, when it gets quiet, Garen's getting emotional. No, I just forgot what I was going to talk about. <laughs> no. This summer when I went to Colorado, there was something going on in my life, and I, could, I knew I was like off-center. I could just tell it. And just being in Colorado, this is what I came back to, and I'm like, oh, yes, yes, it's always that. And it helped me get, get down to something in my life that was under things I think you'll understand in a minute. This is just, uh, it's constantly influencing me, the way I think and live. So I think by the end of the series, you'll see why this topic is so important. Um, a lot of people have influenced my thinking on this. I feel like I should give some credit. Tim Keller, Christopher Wright, J.K. Beale, Brad Bigney, Kyle Eidelman, uh, people who half of them you probably think are on the staff because I reference them so much, but they're not. Um, a lot of others, including a lot of famous dudes from the Reformation, Calvin, Luther, a lot of reformers talked a lot about this. The Puritans talked a lot about this. 
and they've influenced me a lot, and especially the Bible. The last several years as I've annually gone through the Bible, I've seen how profound this theme and how deep it is through the whole Bible. So, um, so one comment I need to make about this. We are trying something new. We are actually, our small groups are going to follow this series this semester. This is something we're trying, so I appreciate you guys giving this a shot. Um, so in the bulletin, if you'll pull out, there's a sheet um, that's folded like this, and it's white. I don't know. Sometimes there's a hundred things in there, but if you can find it, this is the thing that you're going to use in your small groups. Um, so if you could jot some notes today, if you're a note taker, because you're actually going to talk about some of this stuff in your small group this week. Um, yeah, so if you're in a small group, I encourage you to do that. There's also going to be in your bulletin that I'm going to re refer to at the end is a sheet that's diagnostic reflection questions. That's also part of your small group. It's not something you'll do in your group, but it's something you'll do during the week. So those two things are kind of important. Um, if you're not in a small group, because there are people who aren't in one, who I know can't be in one, life's busy or whatever, and you think this is worth like exploring with somebody, I really would encourage you to find a partner, somebody you can have coffee with, two, two people, three people, get together once a week, and you can use this same sheet to, to do the same thing the small groups are talking about, to go through some of the reflection stuff and to think about it and apply it. Um, Steve Lowen and I meet every Friday, and I don't know, he and I may stop what we're doing because we haven't talked yet because we couldn't meet last Friday, but we may end up doing this together as a way just for he and I to reflect on this topic in our own lives. If you want to do that, I have created a leader's guide. So back there by the doors, when you leave, there's that interested in a life group sign on that thing in the corner, whatever that thing is, the desk or whatever. And there is a gray sheet. There's some white ones back there, but there's a gray one. And this gray one tells you how, in a, two, in a group of two people or three, how to walk through that sheet and how to kind of how to, how to work it. So if you're interested in digging into this with somebody, don't have, the small group is not available for you, then I, I really challenge you to do that because I think you'll find great value in doing that. That's why we're trying to do this as a community because to me this is so foundational. So um, I think that's all that stuff. So somebody's crying, which means, Garen, get on with it. We're fine. We're good. So all right. Um, Throughout the Bible, sin is, there's a lot of ways the Bible talks about sin. I'm sure you've heard that in, um, if you go to Alaska, the Eskimos have like 20 words for snow, because we just say snow, but to them, they know like all the different kinds. Does that make sense? Because they know snow so intimately. And the Bible, we have this word sin in English, but many times there's a different Greek or Hebrew word behind it. The Bible has a lot of ways it refers to sin. These are some of them. I think the two, the two in red are the two primary ways I think we think of sin. At least for me, I did a long time. It was primarily as disobedience and rebellion as being the main ways. Um, but I want to try to convince you today that the primary way that the Bible speaks of sin, not that these are not spoken of, but the primary way is of spiritual idolatry. Um, so I really do think that to most people, sin is rule-breaking. I mean, it was for me for a long time. Sin is breaking rules, and being a good guy is obeying the rules, right? It's all about breaking rules or keeping rules, and I really want to challenge that idea. 
So I want to start with the most famous collection of commands found in the Bible, known as um, the Ten Commandments. Yeah, and by, I do want to say this. This, by the way, is this is default, I think, in human nature, that when humans uh, are drawn to religion, when they create religion, I feel like, because you know, I grew up with no religion, and I thought this for a long time. Religion, people create these things to answer questions, and religion is always about rule-keeping. That's just what religion always is. But we used to talk all the time with international students when I worked with them. The Bible, when I came to Jesus, I real, part of it was to me, I realized the Bible wasn't about religion and rules. It was about, like all my internationals knew first service what to say, but some of you probably know. Scott, you're in here. It's not about religion. It's about relationship, right? It's all about relationship. Um, so, let me show you. Let me make my case. So, Exodus 20, 1 to 5. Would you stand and read this with me? I'd like you to do that. Let's stand and let's read Exodus 20, 1 to 5. And it says this, and God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. And this is the word of the Lord. So you may be seated. First command is in bold. Pretty easy to see, right? Number one, right there. You shall have no other gods before me. As you go through the ten, a lot of times people miss this, but this is number two. You shall not make for yourself an idol. So command number two is actually kind of an extending on and expanding on and giving an example of number one, but it doesn't mean that everything in number two, every, one doesn't always have to include that, which we'll see um, in a minute. But the command is, is no other gods. And here's, so the question is, is why was this the first thing on God's mind? when he gave these words. And I would say this, that in the Bible, sin is not primarily the breaking of rules. In the Bible, sin is primarily the loving and the worshiping of other gods. Primarily the loving and the worshiping of other gods. So let's, uh, let's test this theory. And I think probably the best place to go would be to Jesus because he's the center of all that we do. There was a time a guy approached Jesus, and he said, Jesus, I want to know what's the most important command. If I have to follow one command, I want to know what it is. What's the thing God most wants from me? And you know his answer. It was very profound. What's the first word of his, his answer? Uh, I just said it. What's the first word of his answer? Jesus said, love, a relational word. Love who? The Lord your God. How? With all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, love God passionately with everything that you are. That is the first and the greatest command. The most important thing we can do is love God wholeheartedly. In other words, we are to love God supremely. No greater love. There is, should be no greater allegiance. So let me ask you a question, because usually if you ask people, if you were to go out today and on the streets of commercial and like be weird and just go out to people and say, can I take a survey, a poll with you or something? If you ask people like, what, what is the greatest sin? 
I can tell you, you're probably going to get something like murder or genocide or kidnapping or rape, something like that, right? That's going to be your answer. But if God says the greatest command, the most important thing is to love Him passionately, then what would be the greatest sin? If that's true, the greatest sin is what? To what? To not love Him passionately, exactly. And that's not how people think. That's very counterintuitive. That's not how we tend to think of sin because we tend to think of sin primarily as rule-breaking. And so what we see is, is what Jesus states positively, love God with all your heart, is what Exodus 20 says negatively. It's the same side of the same coin, that we are to love and worship God above all things. This is why, um, so the, the most important thing we can do, the greatest command is to love God wholeheartedly and love Him supremely. That's why Jesus in Matthew 6.33 says, seek first God's kingdom and His righteousness, and all the other things you need will be given to you well, as well. It's why Paul in Colossians 1.18 says of Jesus, He's the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might have the, what? Supremacy. I like the New American Standard Version, first Bible I ever owned was NASB, that He might have first place in everything. You see, the Bible is primarily about loving God. That's the main theme through the whole thing. It's all about relationship. And if you don't think about God in primarily terms of relationship, you're missing the point. And we know that because we talk about that all the time. I think it's a catchphrase among us. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. But I find that when we talk about sin, we don't think relationally. We think more about in rule-keeping and rule-breaking. So, the Bible, it's primarily about loving God. And if I'm sharing the good news of Jesus, this is where I always start, that we were created by and for God, and as our Creator, He desires a real and intimate relationship with us. He longs for me to live under His loving reign because He is a good, good Father, to live under His loving reign and to live in relationship with us. The Bible is so clear that God created us and He passionately loves us, and what He seeks is my love in return. That's the main thing he asks of me is for me to love him in return. But we've rejected God. This is what the Bible teaches. We have rejected God and we have lived life. I have lived life for myself instead of pursuing him, pursuing other things. That's what sin is. It's rebellion against his, him, the good, good father, and it's me rejecting that relationship for things that I want to pursue and I want to love. Live life for myself, pursuing other things. That's what idolatry is. And that's the essence of sin. So in the Bible, sin is primarily thought of in relational terms. And again, if you don't get that, you miss the whole point of the Bible. And over the course of the series, we're going to see this in really in more greater terms. Even when we look next week at Jeremiah 2, you'll see how much this, this is so central. So now, when to modern people, like when I threw up at the very beginning of the word idolatry, usually what we think of is this kind of thing, right? Primitive pagan people bowing down to statues made of stone or, or made of wood, sacrificing their children to a god, and we kind of snicker and laugh at those primitive old people uh, because they thought everything was a god. They thought there was a god of sex and a god of work and a god of money. They thought their nation had a god, and we're like, you know, how silly those people were, we think, and kind of we laugh at them, but the truth is at the end of the day, we are actually no better. 
Um, we're not any fundamentally different than the ancient cultures. We are caught up in idolatry now just as much as they were then. We're just more sophisticated in our idolatry than they were, right? As Tim Chalice says, we simply have respectable idols that are better suited for the 21st century. We still have the same gods. I'm going to quote Tim Keller in a minute. We still have the same gods, but we just no longer personify them and carve statues to represent them, but we still worship the same things that people have for centuries. So all along when God said, you shall have no other gods before me, He was envisioning something much more than a physical carved idol. That's why the second command is separate from the first. And as you know, God in all things is primarily concerned, not with the outward, but with the the heart. If you were here this summer, Proverbs 4.23, above all things, guard your heart. That's what God's concerned with. So we see in Ezekiel 14.3 that He tells the Jewish people, He says that their sin is they have idols in in their what? in their hearts. 1 Samuel 15, 25, arrogance, which is an inner attitude, is called idolatry. In Habakkuk 1, 11, God says the Babylonians were people whose strength was their God. And He mocks them a few verses later where He, he in jest says that they sacrificed to and burned incense to their strength. Colossians 3, 5 and Ephesians 5, 5, both called greed or covetousness idolatry. And 1 John 5.21 says, Dear children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. So idolatry is much more than carving an image and bowing down and worshiping. It runs much deeper than that. It is, I would say, it's the lifting up of anything, anything, as the supreme focus of our love, of our trust, and of our obedience. So that's why we are just as much idolaters as the, the pagans of old. Um, each one of us has set up our own shrines at which we worship, whether it's the workplace, uh, yesterday in front of a television set for the LSU-Texas game, right, the gym, the clothing store, in church, can happen in here, at concert venues, at sports stadiums. That's where we make sacrifices to our gods. I remember the first time I got tickets to K-State football game. I, Richard, I think I got them from you, and Kieran and I went. He was a young guy. And it was a fun game, and it had the, it had the unintended effect that my son shifted from the Jayhawks to the, to the Wildcats at that time in his, his loyalty. Perhaps that's why you gave us the tickets. <laughs> but I was amazed when I was there, and I watched that. I'm like, there are so many rituals going on here. I'm like, this feels like worship to me. And then you, after that, I went to my first game in Allen Fieldhouse. You guys ever been to Allen Fieldhouse? KU, basketball? Go to one of those games. Tell me, is that not like worship? I've been to concerts that felt like it was, you were in a worship place. Um, and I think you all know what I'm talking about. That's why Timothy Keller says, what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement, but these same things that have assumed mythic proportions in our individual lives and in our society? We may not physically kneel before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. I mean, don't those words hit home? 
Not, maybe not specifically, but I think you get the point, right? So, this brings us back to the Ten Commandments, in my mind. The reason the first command is a command not to worship other gods. Because I believe the Bible doesn't consider idolatry to be one sin among many sins, but I believe in the Bible, idolatry is the primary sin. Not the only, but it's the primary sin. That it's the, the root sin. And that's why Tim Keller says idolatry is the fundamental motivation behind all forms of rule-breaking. That we never break commandments 2 to 10 unless we first break the first command. And something I've actually been thinking about this week that was a new thought for me is even more if you flip that, that we really truly cannot keep any of the other commands unless we're keeping that first one. And that's why David Powelson says idolatry is the seedbed of our sins. And Brad Bigney says, sin is what you do when you are chasing after something other than God, namely one of your idols. And, I, and this isn't just cool guys and smart guys who say this. I mean, you can find this in the Bible. I just want to show you a couple of examples. In James chapter 1, verses 14 to 15, um, James actually talks a, little, talks a bit about idols in his book, always using frequently sexual imagery, which in a few weeks we'll explain why. But here's a famous verse we know. Each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own, what? Desires. We'll talk about this Greek word in a few weeks. It is an idle word. It it refers to idolatry. It means to desire something inordinately or too much. It just doesn't mean average desire, but that's for next week, actually. But so first, we're tempted when we're dragged away by our desires. That would be an idol, something that we love and worship that we want and pursue more than God. Then after desire has conceived, after that, that desire, the, the idol is there, it gives birth to what? Sin. So sin flows from that. And then sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So that's what Scripture says, is you start with these inordinate desires of something you love and worship. That then gives birth to sin, which gives birth to, with, or conceives sin, which gives birth to death. It's why in Ezekiel 17, 7, 19, He says that idolatry is what made them stumble into sin. And he says that not only there, but he says it um, in chapter 14 twice. We're going to look next week at Romans chapter 1. And when you read Romans 1, when you get to verses 24 to 32, it has a long list of things we would call sin, and rightly so, they are. But what's interesting is before verse 24... The first part of Romans, which is really talking about our sin, that's the whole point of the first three chapters of Romans. Before he gets to the list of sins, the thing that Paul talks about is idolatry and how we exchange God for something else. And then from that flows that long list of sins. So this is a very biblical concept. So idolatry is the sin behind all the other sins. It's the only reason we ever do anything wrong. The thing I love... The idol is the root of my problem. There are sins that grow out of that that are the fruit from that. And I think we tend, especially if we focus on rule-breaking, what we tend to focus on are those sins that are obvious on the surface. If we have a rule-breaking view of sin and we neglect the relationship-breaking component, which is loving something more than God, and that it's actually the idol that's driving the sin. So the reason I cheat on my taxes, which I don't, by the way, the reason I cheat on my taxes, or the reason somebody, who cheats on their taxes here? Who, 
The reason somebody cheats on their taxes is because they love money. Does that make sense? That's what drives, that's what drives that. Do you ever, I'm curious, with your struggle with sin, do you ever feel like you're just playing whack-a-mole? Like, your whole week is just spent, like, sins are popping up that you just struggle with, and, like, one pops up, and you're like, where did that come from? And you're, you go to whack it, and it's gone, and then, like, the next hour, another sin pops up, and the next day, five pop up. Do you ever feel like your, your struggle with sin is like whack-a-mole? Am I the only person who feels that way in my struggle with the evil in my heart? These things keep popping up, and it's almost like to no avail, like getting rid of them. Um, yeah, so again, whack-a-mole. Yesterday, I was out of a place. They're struggling with moles, and... He's trying to whack some moles. Have you ever seen, by the way, a mole trap? It looks like a medieval instrument of death. Oh, my goodness. When I saw that thing, I was like, wow. And then Pat saw it, and you could tell by her eyes that she should not have seen that thing. But anyways, sorry, I digress. Um, Okay, here's the reason it seems like whack-a-mole with our sins. Because lurking under the sins we struggle with is a much deeper issue, much deeper issue. It is the idols that we love and that we worship. And I think all too often, we want to address and deal with the symptoms, and we're not dealing with the root problem in our life. So if you're having a hard time shaking a particular sin or set of sins, it might be that there's an undiagnosed idol or set of idols that are lurking in your heart that's fueling and feeding that. And if you only focus up here on this, on these obvious sins, if that's where you focus... um, and if you don't dig down to the, le- to the level of the idols of your heart, you're going to fail to uproot those sins. And I think it's one of the reasons. There's a lot, but there's one of the reasons I think many Christians struggle and don't find victory in their life over sins because they're dealing with the symptoms and not the root issue. And I think I'm really convinced of this because I know it in my own life that by not thinking of sin in terms of this framework of idolatry, that many of us have unintentionally, unintentionally neglected the root cause of many of the sins we struggle with the most. If a person has a lying problem, they really don't have a lying problem. They've got a worship problem. The worship problem is what leads to the lying problem. Think of it like a bicycle wheel. The sins you struggle with and that we wrestle with and try to overcome every day and we're, we're running around out here trying to focus on this stuff and trying to clean this stuff up and get rid of this thing and all this that really in the center, the hub of everything in the heart are idols that we worship, are, and the idols are the things that generate those kinds of things. So why do you sin the way you sin? Why do we get hung up on where we get hung up? I think it's because, um, because there's an idol that's really fueling that. Um, and so we need to really focus on the hub. Somebody had this illustration. It might have been Kyle Eidemann that I really liked especially since I was just in Colorado. Because um, one thing about Colorado, especially if you stay at the Steinman's cabin, is there's a stream right out back where you can throw up a hammock, and I'd go down there every day. And just imagine that you're in Colorado, and there's this beautiful stream, and you go down one day, and you find, like, a, a water bottle sitting there. And if you care about the environment, you'll pick it up and take it in the cabin and throw it away. And then you go out the next day, and you're like, well, look, there's another water bottle. And then the next day you go out and there's another water bottle and you're like, what is it with these water bottles that keep showing up? And then he says, someday then you get curious, like what's, there's something going on. And so you start walking upstream and you walk five miles and when you get five miles back, you find out that there's this pond full of garbage and that that is the root of the thing you've been dealing with in the stream. 
And I think that really says a lot about our sins, that we can just sit and try to pick sins out of the stream of our life, but if we don't go back to the idol issue, the thing that's generating them, that we could, um, we could really miss the point. Um, does that make sense? I'm going to demonstrate this more really in the next couple of weeks, but um, yeah, we're, gonna, we're just going to talk more. I really think that idolatry, it's of the utmost concern in God's mind. It's the first command because it is the one sin we all struggle with. Jordan and I were talking about this this week. Um, I said, hey, just like tell me some sins you struggle with. And he gave me a whole list. And then he said, tell me yours. I'm like, no way, man. That was awesome. <laughs> like, no, not really. So we were talking, all right? And the things he struggles with are not the same things I struggle with, Okay. And you know, if you focus on sin as rule-breaking, do you know what's really easy to do when I, I know my sin and I see your sin? I know I'm putting somebody in there like, oh my, he sees, he sees my sin. Okay, and, and I see their sin. Isn't it really easy to be like, oh, the rule they broke is a lot worse, right, than the rule I broke, right? It's really easy to compare. Um, but that's really the wrong thing because the truth is, is we are all idolaters. Does that make sense? Every single one of us has rejected a relationship with God. We're living life for ourselves, pursuing other things. That's every one of us. We're just doing it different ways. We have a different idol. So maybe for Jordan, because the Jayhawks is a major idol in his life, just a minor one in mine, but it's a major one in his life. But out of the same idol, for him may come, may come pride, but for me it may come jealousy, like of the K-State football team or, right, okay? But out of the same idol, different sins can flow. Does that make sense? But the truth is, is we're all idolaters, every single one of us. And it really helps the way you view people. It, it takes away a lot of judgmentalism to say, you know what? They're an idolater and so am I. I'm in the exact same boat. That is the sin under all sin. A few years ago, actually not a few, 1990s. So for old people, a few years ago is 1990s. For some of you, that was ages ago. People Magazine did a poll, and they asked Americans which sin is the easiest, to, I mean, which command of the Ten Commandments is the easiest to keep. And they asked them to rank them one to ten. Now, First Service got this right, so it's really big pressure. What do you think was the sin, the command, I'm sorry, the command that most people said was the easiest to keep of the ten? What would you guess? Murder. You guys nailed it. Good job. Murder. Everybody's like, oh, murder, that's, that's an easy one to keep. I may want to strangle the neck of 50 people every day, but I don't really murder people. So everybody thought that was the easiest to keep. What do you think was number two, the easiest to keep? Sinking hard back there. Somebody first service said, obeying your parents. And I'm like, wow, you're a good child. That's <laughs> awesome. That was not... Uh, can I show you? It's do not worship any other gods was picked as the second easiest. It's because we don't really understand what the Bible says about idolatry, and we focus on rule breaking and not relationship breaking, and that this actually is the one that's the easiest to break because we do it all the time. So I just want you to, I just, I hope you see that it's, yeah. So in the coming weeks, this is what I want to, I want to demonstrate that in the Bible, the primary way of defining sin is not the primary way is not as rule-breaking, but rather primarily as the loving and worshiping of other gods. 
The primary human problem is not rule-breaking, it's relationship-breaking. It is not rule-breaking, it is relationship-breaking. It is the rejection of God to pursue something that I want to love more than Him. That's the essence of sin. We'll see that next week in Jeremiah. So sin is, not, is so much more than doing bad things. It is primarily putting good things in the place of God on the throne of your heart. It's really all about the throne of your heart. And that's why Mark Batterson said, idolatry isn't a problem. It's the problem. Sin is just a symptom. Idolatry is the root cause. You can't just confess sin. You also have to dethrone the idol. So we're going to call this series The Real Game of Thrones. This is the real Game of Thrones. The real Game of Thrones is the reality that all of us want to love and worship and give our hearts and lives to something other than God. We're constantly tempted to it. We're constantly drawn to it. And what we love and worship is the thing we put on the throne of our heart. That's the thing we bow to. That's the thing we serve. And the real Game of Thrones is this whole thing about relationship with God and how do we interact with Him. So, here's what I'm, my goals for the series. I've got four things. Four things. Um, By the way, for those of you that worship at the altar of, not just football, but Kansas City Chiefs, I mean, who would, who would have that sin? I don't know, but who worship the idol of the chiefs, we're going to have an extra long service today just to help you with that idolatry, okay? Just to break you of that. Um, those of us who have a team that plays at four and who really don't have an idolatry problem with our team don't have to worry about long services, but if you're a Chiefs fan, I'm sorry. Okay, that's all. I don't know where that came from, but probably an idol in my heart. Here's my four goals with this. Number one, I want us to understand spiritual idolatry. So over the next several weeks as we go through this, the Bible looks at idolatry from so many angles, and we're going to look at it from lots of different angles, and there's a lot of stuff that I think you will find helpful in understanding it. Not just that, we want to identify our personal idols. And so if you would, for a second, this sheet that's like, it's probably folded in there, but it says diagnostic reflection questions, I want you to pull that out. If you're in a small group... Um, they're going to encourage you to do this, but I really encourage everybody here this week, we're going to get one of these every week because the best way to identify idols, I think, is to ask diagnostic questions to before God in prayer, search me, God, know my heart, see if there's any evil way in me. Like, Lord, I want you to show me the things that I love more than you. And there are going to be questions, different ones each week that'll help you think about that. So I encourage you to reflect on this during the week, to ask these prayerfully. Also, the scripture we're going to use next week is on there, and then there's a prayer for the week that we're going to pray together in just a minute. Um, But this is to help you in identifying your idols by asking some questions. The first thing on here, in my own experience, and the longer I live, the more I see this, two places that idols are going to come from in your life are your primary relationships and your primary roles. The people you most value are the things you will be tempted to make into an idol, and the things you do that define you, so to speak, your primary roles are also the things that are so easy for you to lift up to become an idol in your life, the thing you love and worship. 
and I'm not going to spend a lot of time right now, but we're going to talk about it in two weeks, I believe, that what becomes your idol, your identity gets tied up into it, and you start to gain your value and your worth from your idols. So from those people that become your idols, maybe your children or a spouse, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, the roles, the things you do that become your idols, your identity gets tied to those things so easily. And, but we're going to learn in a few weeks that an idol, a created thing, can never fill you up. It can never give you an identity that will last. They will always fail you in some way. So we want to identify. Third, we want to repent of our idols. Just learning by itself is not the goal of this. It's that we will come to where we not only know our idols, but we, want to, we long to repent of them. And also we're going to talk about how to gain freedom from our idols. Um, in that regard, I've got a book that I just ran into actually a week and a half ago and called Sipping Saltwater. And I wanted to have a book for this series because I think this topic is so important. I wanted, for those of you who are book lovers, I wanted to provide something for you to read. We actually sold out of these first service, um, so the demand was pretty high, but we're still going to, back there, we will take orders. I don't remember um, if they were taking money this week or just getting your name. It's probably money and getting your name, but it's $14. That covers the book. That covers shipping. No profit. We're not making any profit off this. Um, but it's really profound. It's written by a guy who's a biblical counselor, and he calls it Sipping Salt Water. And here's, let me just tell you his image of idolatry that I really love and found fascinating. He says, imagine you, um, he even takes the guy, Scott, World War II, Zam, 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 Louis Zamperini, Zamparelli, you know what I'm talking about, the movie Unbroken, the book Unbroken was about him. His plane crashes and ends up being in a life raft in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, I think for 47 days, world record. Um, so here he is in a life raft. And when you're in a life raft and the sun's beating on you in the South Pacific, you're going to get really thirsty, right? And so when he's in a life raft, he's really thirsty. And what is he totally surrounded by? Water. What kind of water? Salt water. Okay. Now, it was really tempting for him. If you read the book, it's fascinating. Anybody in that situation. But the thing to, to slack your thirst, where do you really, where you, you were just so tempted to go to drink the salt water. What will the salt water do? Well, huh? Yeah. Number one, it won't slack your thirst. It actually makes you more thirsty, and then it will kill you. It will destroy you. And he takes that imagery, and he says, we live in a world surrounded by salt water, and we have a thirst for God, our Creator, that He put in us, and we're thirsty for Him, but when we turn away from Him and we turn to other things, it's like drinking salt water. It doesn't take care of the thirst. It only makes the thirst worse. And it will, in the long run, it will destroy you. It will hurt your relationships. It will hurt you. It will break you. It will enslave you. So I really love the imagery. Um, and then he ends up, then after he kind of goes through that, he talks about some of the idols we struggle with, money, sex, control, comfort, busyness, people, food, and work. And so it's a really simple read. I can do a and I take notes a lot when I read, but I can do a chapter in about 15 minutes. It's not that long, but it's really good. It's not simple. So if you're interested, go to the information booth after, put in your order for that, and we'll have that next week. So, okay, we're going to pray in a minute. I thought before we did, there's the book. Um, I haven't done this in a while, but I'm just curious, is there anybody, any 
questions, because this is, for some people, is probably a little bit of a new idea that sin is not primarily rule-breaking, but it's relationship-breaking. Any, I know this is weird, I don't normally do this, so anybody have a question they want to ask? KB. Yes. So say that again, KB. Yeah. So, like, why do we not do that, or should we do that? Yeah, the old-time churches, when I first became a believer, that's what, that my church had a Sunday morning, a Sunday night, Monday work night, Wednesday prayer meeting, Thursday visitation, uh, Friday youth, and we did something on Saturday as a church, so it was like, yeah, so why do we not do that? What I would say KB is like, so Sunday nights, what it's become here are the small groups. That's the place where people um, can get together in more intimate settings and like talk this stuff over. So still feeling like agreeing that we need to get together more. So the big one on Sunday morning, we're doing small groups. And then we're actually, I've got a group that I'm, we've talked, but we're working on ways to get, to, uh, to get the value of prayer and important this community higher, which was a lot of Wednesday night meetings were prayer meetings, so are wanting to get some prayer back, not that it's gone, but wanting to elevate the prayer thing, so same things you're caring about, we care about, so one more. Yeah, so I think the question is, is wanting to know about God, that can that become an idolatry, and actually next week we're going to kind of hit that idea in general, that's a great question, because the truth is, is God can, can become so much an object of study that what you're really loving is knowing facts about Him but not loving Him. Does that make sense? Um, so that is possible, but it doesn't mean it's necessary, but we're going to kind of hit that idea next week. By the way, these are new, they're visiting this morning. They are Nigerian-Americans who are Scottish from Scotland, which is really awesome. I've never had some Nigerian-American Scots here before. We've got a couple here from Iran this morning, which is really awesome. And I saw Dongling earlier, but we just love it when the nations are here because God cares about all nations. So anyways, we're glad to have you guys this morning. Would you stand with me? I would like to pray. And this is a prayer that is on that sheet. And if you want to pray this daily, is just a way of you expressing to your heart your desire to have your life centered on Him and not on other things. So would you guys join me? Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you have said that you are the way the truth, and the life. Suffer us not to stray from you who are the way, nor distrust you who are the truth, nor rest in anything other than you who are the life. Father, may we be a kind of people who don't rest in other things besides you, that you are the focus of our attention, of our heart, of our love, and of our worship. And so we long that we would be a community of people that are known more than anything else that the people at that place love God passionately with their whole heart, their whole soul, their whole life. That's the kind of people we want to become. We need your help um, to do that. So please help, help us to see your beauty and to be attracted to you and to have you at the center of our lives this week. And we pray this longingly in the name of Jesus, the one we worship. Amen. So let us go this week and live with God as the center of our lives. So you are sent.